All right. Well, I will start with a story for you a little bit. Earlier this year, uh, Matthew and I were reading, read the book Brooch Co. by Bruce Olson to Scarlet and Eden. And it's by this man, Bruce Olson, who's a missionary. And he went to Venezuela and Colombia in the early 60s at the age of 19 to be a missionary to this Stone Age uh, tribe of Matalone Indians. And the Matalones lived in communal homes and they all slept in hammocks that were suspended up in the rafters of the ceiling, like 20 feet up high. So they, it's like all these crowd of people lived in this big house. They did their thing and their fires and their cooking and everything on the floor. And then they climbed up into the rafters where their hammocks were hanging. Okay. So Bruce comes to live among them, which is a crazy story. You should really read it. Um, I skipped over some crazy stuff, all right? But he had, he was hesitant about climbing up in this hammock at first, and his first Matalone friend told him he had to get both feet in the hammock and be suspended. Uh, after living with the Matalones and adopting their culture and building relationships, Bruce's best Matalone friend wanted to know about Jesus, and Bruce told him that he could tie his hammock strings into Jesus. You have to be suspended, he said. That is how it is when you follow Jesus. You have to tie your hammock strings into Jesus and be suspended in God. Bruce used this model on word, suspended, for faith when he later translated the Bible into the model on language. And faith is what we're here to focus on this weekend. Um, of course, we want to look at Hebrews 11 verses 1 to 3, which is, what is faith, right? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Okay? We hope for it. We know there's evidence for it, but we can't see it. Just as Bruce hoped that this hammock would hold him up, and he saw evidence is holding up all these other people, but he still had to put both feet in and be completely suspended in God. Dr. J. Oswald Sanders wrote commentary, and he said, Faith enables the believing soul to treat the future as present and the invisible as seen. So faith is believing that God will keep his promises despite circumstances that seem to be to the contrary. Faith is believing and having faith is putting your whole weight on God. If God said it, then it's true and we're to believe it. And here in this illustration, you see, he is trusting, he is stepping on what he knows is not a step in a man's eyes, it is a step that God is calling him to make, and he's trusting. He's stepping out into it. A poem that I really love says, nothing before, nothing behind, the steps of faith, falling on the seeming void, find the rock beneath. So really, that hand of God that we step into, we're like, oh, where's the steps? The steps aren't there. Well, man's steps aren't there, but God's hand, the rock, is. And that's far more secure than anything else that we could possibly step on. It's just not what we see with our earthly eyes. 
So our theme verse for this weekend is Hebrews 11.6. And in this verse, we see the importance of faith and the results of faith. Hebrews 11.6, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So how important is faith? Faith is crucial, right? Um, it's critical. It's necessary. You know, in college, all, there's the elective classes and then there's the required classes. And you're not going to graduate unless you take those required classes. Well, faith is required. It's not an elective. It's vitally, crucially, critically important. We cannot perform enough good works to please God. Okay, So without faith, it is impossible to please God. So we can't say, well, instead of having faith to please God, I'll do good works. I'll do lots of obedience to please God, but I'm not going to have faith in him. It doesn't work that way. Only faith pleases God. Our good works, no matter how many or how good, can never make up for the lack of faith. So think about it this way. Are you pleased with your husband if he doesn't have any confidence in you? Is he pleased with you if he can't trust you? Are you ever ple are you pleased when your friend um, doesn't trust what you say? No. If you distrust someone in a relationship, then there is discord and trouble and hurt. The same thing is true of God. Albert Barnes says this. He says, God cannot be pleased with the man who has no confidence in him, who doubts the truth of his declarations and promises, who does not believe that his ways are right or that he is qualified for universal empire. The requirement of faith or confidence in God is not arbitrary. It is just what we require of our children and partners in life and friends as the indispensable condition of our being pleased with them. We want God to be pleased with us. We have to have confidence, faith in him and know he is the rock that we step on. So what does faith believe? Hebrews 11:6, that he is, that God is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We want to diligently seek God this weekend. And I love that song that the worship team started us off with. And I can't remember the line now, but it talks about, I want to seek you, God, and on my knees, I worship you, and I seek you, something like that. And it's um, so beautiful. God wants us to diligently seek him. And that's why we have left, um, you know, our families and our regular commitments and our home and spent time and money that we're committed here this weekend because we want to seek God and be diligent, work hard, on that. We can be confident that when we diligently seek God that he's going to reward us spiritually in a way that can be totally that will be totally worth it. We have a little reward here, right? A trophy. But God's reward is not earthly. Thank goodness, right? Like this is really just a bunch of plastic, right? But God's rewards are eternal and last forever. And we can look forward to that in a godly way, not in a selfish kind of way. So this weekend, we're going to learn from the example of faith that pleased God in the lives of three different women of the Bible, Sarah, Rahab, and Ruth. And also from more recent history, women of faith, Esther on Kim, Elizabeth Elliot, and Johnny Erickson Tata. 
So I'm really excited to do this, learn this with y'all, and uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we get to be here and learn about these women of faith, and Lord, help us to become women of faith that glorify you, that put all of our confidence in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now Lupe is going to come and share some announcements for us this weekend. Announcements, announcements, announcements. You're going to have plenty of them all the time. <laughs> okay, the main, one of the main things that we, oh goodness, I grabbed the wrong one. Well, it's the policies and procedures that are in your book. Um, you don't, you know, just sometime tonight or whenever, kind of go through them and familiarize yourself with them because it's things that, that the uh, Zion Center has said that they, um, policies and procedures of this organization and this facility. And it's mainly, most of it is for our own safety. Is you know, just some real simple things. The doors are closed at 10 o'clock uh, at night, mainly for our safety. Uh, there will be someone here 24 seven the whole time that we're here. And so um, we ask that, that after 10 o'clock that you do not go outside or open the door uh, to go outside. You will need a key to get back in. Uh, and if no one hears you knocking, you'll have to spend the night outside, <laughs> okay? <laughs> so, and then also you can go outside though uh, when we're not uh, doing sessions or, or any other activity, prayer or whatever. You can go outside and enjoy the day during the day and even in the late, in the evening, early evening. But please try not to be out there by yourself in the evening. Um, they want us to re to remember that this is an urban area, and even though we are kind of in a neighborhood, um, you know, being in an urban area, you don't really want to be out by yourself. And uh, and then again, because we are in this um, this area that we're in, um, Galveston has a noise ordinance, and so at 10 o'clock, um, the police will come. <laughs> if you're out there making, you know, noises and a lot loudly stuff. So, um, you know, I know that y'all like to get out there and laugh and holler and sing and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, but um, there, there is a noise ordinance um, until 7 o'clock in the morning. Uh, after that, you can hoop and holler all you want. <laughs> okay. And, and then the other thing is... Um, uh, be sure and read the, the part about the fire. If there is a fire, which thank God last year we didn't have any, um, and the, except the fire of the Holy Spirit, I think was present over here, and hopefully that will be the same to, uh, tonight and, and the rest of the weekend. But, uh, you know, just if, if there is a fire, just leave the building. Uh, don't go back to try to find anyone. Uh, I have a list of everyone who uh, is here, and we will account for them outside. And if there's someone missing, then we want to leave it to the authorities to, to go in and, and come in and do what they have to do you know, to uh, get anybody out. Uh, what happens a lot of times is people will exit another direction, and you will exit another one and not know that that person is safely out. Um, so that's basically it. And don't, uh, don't change rooms or any of that um, without letting me know, again, for that very reason that um, 
we need to know that, that everyone is accounted for and no one is missing. So uh, just kind of some safety issues and, that we have. Um, and let me see what else. Oh yes, um, we have prayer partners here, three prayer partners. Oh gosh, I didn't wear it. Anyway, Jenny has a, a little um, silver cross and whoever's wearing uh, the silver cross as Jenny, Myrna and myself, I will be wearing it. <laughs> Just if at any time you want some private prayer, we'll be more than happy to pray for you. Uh, just not during uh, any of the teaching sessions, okay? And um, let's see. Oh, yes, we are to turn off our electronics or put them on silent mode. And if you have to take a call, because sometimes you do, uh, just kind of step as far away so that you won't be heard and interrupt everyone. So um, I guess that that's it for the announcements for right now. Um, so now we're going to bring Jenny back <laughs> and she is going to do our first study for the weekend and it is on Sarah, uh, the wife of Abraham, the matriarch of the Jewish and Christian faith and a woman of faith as proclaimed in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith uh, in the Bible that does state her as counted among the faithful uh, of God. Thank you ladies. Right. <laughs> yeah. Last year I was taller because the thing was up and I could step up. <laughs> 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 you can see my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> start with prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your holy word. I thank you that we can study it, that we can focus on you this weekend and seek you diligently. I thank you for revealing yourself in your word and for this opportunity to study it. And God, I just pray that you would speak through me, that I would just be used by your spirit and that you would be the one who teaches all of us from this, Lord, I, I know it's just as convicting to me. Every word that I say is not because I've learned it, but because you have been convicting me with it as well, Lord. And I just pray that you would help myself and every one of us to hear your word and be convicted and to change and to honor you and grow as women of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So... Let's see what God has for us to learn from the life of our first woman of faith this weekend, Sarah. I have entitled it Sarah, From Faithless to Faithful. I love Sarah because I can identify with her in her faithless part very, very well. She has many sins, many imperfections. The Bible is very open and frank to record her failures uh, and thoughts and actions as well as her faithful ones which come later on yet a slow start that she had doesn't mean that you can't learn to run fast and win the prize Sarah's story gives me hope that God can change me 
and other people that aren't all the way there with faith yet and make us into faithful people. I hope that will be my story one day, that I'll have a legacy that my children can tell their children that mom started out slow, but she eventually got there, you know, with God's help from faithless to faithful. So first of all, some background on Sarah. Sarah is one of the most prominent women of the Bible. She was the matriarch of Israel, and that's the mother of the Jewish nation that's still like the most prominent in the world's stage today. She starts off with her name is Sarai, which means my princess, kind of referring to like this is Abraham's princess. And then God changes her name to Sarah, meaning princess, as in princess of the nation. The Bible's first mention of her is as wife to the patriarch and founding father of Israel named Abram, who would be later called by God Abraham. So we'll go to Genesis 11, 29 to 31. And we read, Then Abraham and Nahor, who was his brother, took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. Ancient Semitic culture put a very high value on a woman's fertility and ability to conceive and bear not just a child, but like many children, the more the better. So the disappointment and devastation and hurt and shame that came with barrenness hurts today, but would have hurt even more because of, at that time because of the cultural pressures and expectations. Uh, even though we don't have that today, it's the emotional pain of infertility and miscarriage and death of a child can be huge. Uh, I spent a year having miscarriages and not able to have a baby, and I was wondering just in that one year, right? It's just a year, right? Um, if I'd ever be able to carry a child to term, and that was very difficult. So I have just a small taste. I know many have this much longer and much harder than myself. And yet Sarah was 90 when she had her first and only child. And we aren't told what age she got married and started trying, which obviously would have been right away in that culture. But they would probably have been at least um, 50 to 70 years of barrenness here, or maybe even more. Sarah knew the hurt of infertility very well. And God knows and understands our hurt and can heal our hurt today, just as he did for Sarah. This is the Sarah that we will learn about as a woman of faith. We already see that she was carrying a very large burden of hurt and longing and doubt and disappointment. So... Yes... We're going to study um, Sarah and see her change in this process. So she's going to go from faithless to faithful. All right. So first we're going to talk about her first faithless evidence here in the scripture. 
how Sarai joined Abraham's lie. So Sarai's lack of faith led to marriage problems. First, she disobeyed God and lied along with her husband in a way that compromised their marriage and almost put in jeopardy the purity of the line of the ancestry of Jesus. Okay? So, in Genesis 12, verses 11 to 16, we'll read about her telling this lie. And it came to pass when Abraham was close to entering Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister. That way it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. Well, I bet Sarah is thinking, well, it'd be good, be well with you, (laughs) but not with me. But she does it. She does lie Uh, agree to lie with him. So please see, God does not want wives to submit to their husbands in sin. If your husband wants you to sin by directly disobeying God's word, things like cheating on taxes or telling a lie or refusing to go to church, the Bible says you are to obey God rather than man. That's uh, Acts 5.29. But we are commanded to submit if the husband's decision is not specifically against God's word. So those would be opinion things. And you may think, well, his opinion is foolish. His opinion is no good. (laughs) And maybe it is no good. Maybe it is a foolish choice. But you are to submit to your husband and trust God because submission to the Lord, by showing submission to your husband, is the greatest priority compared to a foolish decision or choice that he might make. <clears throat> For example, he may want, you know, may have an end-of-the-year bonus check or something. Uh, he may say, let's remodel the house. And you say, no, we should really save that for college education. Well, those are different opinions. One may be wiser than the other. But ultimately, he's, if he decides to remodel the house and you really want to save it for college, it's not a sin, even if it is a foolish decision. It's not a sin. You don't disobey. You submit in those things. Sarah should have not submitted to Abraham when he said, let's lie, which is directly against God's command. Sarah should have encouraged Abraham, let's trust God by refusing to join him in the lie. We as wives should look for opportunities to respectfully help our husbands trust and obey God by living out a good example, not nagging them, belittling them. She shouldn't have said, oh, you're so stupid for thinking of that. That would be a terrible thing to do. Then she's adding disrespect. She's maybe doing the right thing, I'm not going to lie, but she's now sinning herself by disrespecting. So she should have respectfully said, let's not do that. Let's trust God. Let's not lie. All right. And think of how different this whole story of Sarah could have been if she would have refused to tell a lie with her husband. So it was when Abraham came to Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman that she was very beautiful. So she must have been a knockout. She's well past middle age at this point. 
The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Now, at first it seems they got away with telling the lie. But you see what they're given in that list of things. You see female servants. And this, one of those female servants is Hagar, who is going to figure in prominently in the next point. And from that will become even more sin, sexual sin, and long-lasting negative consequences that are still with us today, all from a lack of faith. A godly helpmate to Abram would have had faith in God to protect them instead of telling a lie and would have respectfully tried to encourage him and influence him towards obeying God rather than dishonesty. Next, in verse 17, we read, But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. He had taken her into the harem, but not gone all the way yet. So it was still safe. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent Abraham away with his wife and all that he had. So even though Sarai and Abraham sinned, God still protected their lives and Sarai's virtue in order to maintain the purity of his prophecy that the promised child and ultimately the promised Messiah would come through the line of Abraham and Sarai. So here we see that they should have both trusted God and reasoned God promises children, and we don't have them yet. Therefore, if God's going to keep his promise, which we know God always does keep his promise, then we're safe until that promise is fulfilled at the very least. Okay, If they had really trusted what God had said, a lack of faith. The, um, Donald Barnhouse says this, faith is not a mushroom to spring up overnight in damp soil. It is an oak tree that grows for a thousand years under the blast of the wind and rain. So we don't expect Sarai or our faith to just, oh, tomorrow we're going to all wake up and be amazing women of faith. It didn't happen that way for Sarah. It's not for us. But it's something that we need to embrace and be willing and recognize, hey, I'm going to, for that oak tree faith, you know, and that's going to take wind and rain and perseverance, and that is what we want to go for and keep in mind. So God's in the business of growing Sarah into a woman of great faith, and this requires the circumstances, the wind and rain, you know, hard things, where Sarah must learn to trust God, and along the way, she fails in those, but can learn from them as well. All right, now for number two in Sarah's list of failures and faithlessness. She disobeyed God and compelled her husband to as well. First Sarah coveted, then she tried to take headship, and then she was wrong in what she led him to do, and she didn't trust God. It's a crazy one, okay? So number two, Sarah distrusted God and coveted a child to the point of pushing Abraham into adultery. Wow you will see that Sarai's sinful thoughts and inner 
mantras here are exactly what most people say today as well. So we'll go to Genesis 16, verses 1 to 6. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. Remember the ones given because of their lie back in Egypt. Okay. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go in to my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. After Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, so he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. Wow. So, point A here, under number two, is Sarai sinned by coveting. She sinned a lot of things in this one so we have to break that down. <laughs> it's just a loaded situation. So first of all, she's coveting, all right? Coveting is a sinful longing for something and striving to get it. So having a son is certainly a good thing. God promised it. It's obviously a good thing. Yet, she was coveting a good thing. And that covet something, coveting something good is sinful, just like coveting something bad is. When you long for something, covet it, want it more than you long for, seek after, and trust in God. So do we ever do that? Covet something, even a good something? Maybe we long for something really good, like better family relationships. That's a good thing, right? But we long for that so much that it can start to become more important to us than God himself is important to us. So we say this good thing is worth it, whatever the cost. But the cost is dethroning God and putting in something else, even a very, very good thing, in that place on the throne instead of God. So we're dethroning God in our heart and putting the good thing in his seat instead. Nothing, not even a good thing, is worth that cost. I know that was something God convicted me of in the time with our miscarriages and everything. I realized I was wanting the good thing. I want to be a mom. I want to have children. That's good, right? That's not a bad thing. But I was struggling with coveting that and making that more important than my relationship with God, you see? And so it is uh, something we have to work on of thinking even it's not just bad things that we can covet. We can covet good things as well. We have to make sure God is always the one that we keep on that throne and the line up the good things under him in his time, his way. All right, so B, second part of sin here. Sarai sinned by taking the leadership from her husband. Sarai was not fulfilling her role as a helpmate, right? Genesis 2.18, and the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I shall make him a helper comparable to him. So this was her job to be a help to him, not to take the headship away from him. Instead, she commanded him what to do. She took over. She said, I'm going to wear the pants in this relationship. It's not worked out so far. This is what you should do. All right. Now, don't we, as women, generally speaking, um, tend to do this? We see our husband just isn't getting the job done. 
or done right. So we feel we have to jump in for the sake of the mission, for the sake of the goal, right? We have to just step in and make sure it's taken care of the right way, see? And that's accomplishing the mission at all costs. But the cost is obedience to God, all right? So the cost of disobeying God by wresting leadership from your husband is not worth the sin, all right? We can't do that. All right, C, Sarai's next sin. Sarai sinned by advocating adultery. Pretty obvious one here. So this is where the female servant Hagar from Egypt comes back in the story. Sarai did something that goes against God's law and the nature of wives. She gave another woman to her husband. Just think about that. That's really, really desperate. I mean, we understand, right, like she's desperate for a child. That would be a crazy level of desperation. But it has been maybe 70 years of that desperation. But that's still really crazy. All right. Oftentimes, maybe a husband in that culture would take a second wife. Uh, my first wife isn't any good at providing me children. But she is the one who initiates this whole thing. Isn't that crazy? She invited her servant Hagar into her husband's bed. Even though this is an early, early form of surrogate motherhood, it was common, it was accepted in that day, but it doesn't make it right. God was clearly not leading Abraham and Sarai to break his command and commit adultery just to accomplish what he wanted. So a commonly committed sin is still a sin. A culturally accepted sin is still a sin. Everybody doing it, sin, is still a sin. Everybody's just sinning. So we have to recognize this is still wrong and just as much sin as it ever was, even if it is everybody else is doing it. Sarah obviously thought that this sin of adultery would be worth it to bring about the greater good of having a son. But this is one of the many examples in the Bible that show us that the end does not justify the means, the means is just as important to God as the end, all right? Because they got the end, they got a son out of this adultery. They got a son. And culturally, this was recognized as Sarah's son, you know, that she got through a surrogate uh, mother. But God didn't recognize this because the means was the wrong way to get to the end. He doesn't recognize the end because they had the wrong means as well. Sarah sinned by trying to help God to do what he had promised, as if God needs help, right? She was trying to make God's promise come about through her own efforts. She was taking matters into her own hands instead of trusting God to provide a son, as he had already promised he would do. And this is called a work of the flesh, which means trying to do a good work but manipulating things to make it happen in your own way and time instead of God's way and God's time. Benjamin Franklin is the one who said, God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible, and it's not biblical, and it encourages sinful mindset. And Sarah thought, oh, I'm just going to help myself, you know? I'm going to help God out. I'm going to help myself. He'll reward me for it. But that's not true at all. 
So have you ever tried to make something happen in your way and time instead of waiting on God? No, I have plenty of times. Work of the flesh, right? And what? And even sometimes, just like Sarah, you want this good thing to happen, and you say, well, God, God's not getting around to it. I'll just do it in my way. I'll try to make it happen. And even if we have that right end that we're looking towards, we, if we're not going about it in the right means, the way that God intends, then it doesn't do any good. John 15.5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me will bear much fruit. Apart from me, apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. So Sarah was apart from God. She wasn't doing this out of abiding in God. She was doing it out of her own self. Even though the same goal of a child was there, Sarah was doing it out of the flesh, and God wanted it done out of the spirit. See? And so that makes all the difference. And the world, that that's just goes, flies in the face of the world, right? Because the world's like, hey, just, you know, whatever it takes to get to this goal, think outside of the box, do it different ways, you know? So the end and the means all has to come from God and be in God's way, right? So the long waiting for the promise discouraged Abraham and Sarai, Abram and Sarai, and their lack of faith made them vulnerable to acting in the flesh. It's much better to wait to receive God's help than to try and help him with our own wisdom and our own manipulation. All right, so now we'll go into the third faithless thing of Sarah. Sarah laughed at God's promise of a son. So now we'll go to Genesis 17. One more over. Then God said to Abram, sorry, 17 verse 15. Then God said to Abram, Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. Now we'll go to Genesis 18, 10 to 14. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, which is talked about nine-month pregnancy. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? So don't laugh at God. We should never laugh at God. <laughs> All right? Um, I used to say, Oh God, I'll do whatever you want, but just... Uh, you know, send me to whatever country you want. I'll do whatever you want, but just not a pastor's wife and not in a big city. God, just send me to any other place, but it's not big city. So, of course, God laughed at me, and I married a pastor, and um, we've lived only in big cities ever since then because we lived in the largest city in Scotland, Glasgow, and then we were in Atlanta, Georgia, and then we were in San Diego, California, and now Houston, Texas. So it's only... <laughs> Big cities, right? God has a great sense of humor when we try to have our humor on him, right? Uh, verse 13, And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. So Sarah was focusing on her weakness more than on God's infinite strength, right? She wasn't having, um, hoping in what was to come. She wasn't focusing on the evidence of things that she can't see, all right? She was focusing on her weakness instead and what she could see instead. So this is often the reason we don't trust, because we think something is too hard for God. We often know and believe what the Bible says. God is able, like, you know, knowing much about God at all, you know, yes, God can do anything. You know you're supposed to say that, right? But do we really believe that he will be able and willing to do that anything in our own life? See? So I read Bruch Co. and all these missionary stories, all my, um, you know, high school and young adult life, and all this amazing provision of God and all these great things he did. And then God called me to be a missionary, and we're in Scotland. It's like, wow, is God going to, I know God can, but does, is God really, truly going to do what he can for me, you know? And we had this month that we lost a huge amount of our support from the states all at uh, the same time and it was a real test of our faith are we going to trust god with this and god totally provided through a church we did not even know in north carolina we'd never visited there just a random calvary chapel emailed us and saying we'd like to support your church you know and they hadn't been getting our newsletter anything like that so it's just a crazy thing. God, out of the blue, can do whatever he wants and needs to provide. And he is willing to do that for us. And we, want, we need to trust him. Not only is he able, but that he's willing to do it. So now after we've dissected Sarah's failures and faithlessness and sinful thinking, you're just like, why are we learning about Sarah? She's only a bad example. Well, so far you're right. However, 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. God was faithful even when Sarah was not. All right, just like in Romans 5, 8, we see that God demonstrates his own love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He did, thankfully, praise God, he doesn't have to wait around for us to do the right thing or to fully trust him for him to work. I'm so glad for that. All right, so now let's turn to some good, good parts about Sarah, okay? First uh, Peter chapter 3, and then we'll get to Hebrews 11 as well. So in First Peter 3, we see a transformed woman and Sarah's faith growing. So now we have um, her moving to faithful, Sarah to faithful. Number one, Sarah didn't fear and submitted to her husband. Okay? 1 Peter 3, 1 to 6. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, which means like reverence, not scared you're going to hit me. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. 
Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. So you see, Sarah, it figures in as the example in this whole uh, challenge to women. So what does God say for us to adorn ourselves with? Adorn, or sorry, we're to adorn ourselves with a gentle spirit, quiet spirit, trusting God, not afraid, and submission to husbands. So first of all, this word adorn um, means to call something to be beautiful by decorating it. All right, including people. Here it refers to the correctness of a well-fitted garment, in no way outlandish or provocative. Cosmeo is the source of the English word cosmetic. So this word, adorn yourself, is referring to, um, you know, using the same root word that we get cosmetic from. So remember back in Genesis 12, 11, when they told the lie, uh, we read that Sarah was a woman of beautiful countenance. All right, but she had all this outward beauty, but she obviously didn't have inner beauty to match that. Okay, First Peter 3 tells us that a woman's character, the hidden person of her heart, is what we should focus on adorning and growing since that part of ourselves will never grow old or corrupt. And most of our, um, and most of all of our hidden person is very precious in the sight of God. So this aspect of submission to your husband is being placing yourself under the authority of. It is voluntary, voluntary selflessness, not a doormat, but a voluntary selflessness. Now the gentle and quiet spirit, spirit needs defining as well because it's not used in a biblical way today, and it doesn't mean being a doormat either. Gentle spirit means meek. Gentle spirit accepts God's dealings as good without resisting him. So it's trusting God and his sovereignty to rely wholly on God and not yourself to defend you against injustice. We need to trust God's sovereignty as if we have a gentle spirit. We're trusting God's sovereignty and permitting injury to purify saints and give deliverance in his time. So it's recognizing, yes, hard things can come, but God, trusting God's going to use this in his time to bring good through it. So this is the opposite of self-interest and self-assertiveness. If you have a gentle spirit, you're not occupied with self at all. And it stems from having trust in God's goodness and sovereignty and the work of the Holy Spirit. So this gentle spirit is a really, uh, I, I really loaded phrase here that it's too bad that it's missed out on with just quiet spirit. You're like, oh, shy, <laughs> introvert. No, that's not it at all. This is something, no matter what our personality, this is something that we should do, be selfless and trusting God's justice and not be trying to assert ourself over others. And then the quiet spirit is being immovable, steadfast, and tranquil. Also an inner quality that you can have, no matter what your personality. One of my biggest struggles and sins is um, asserting myself with my kids, my so beautiful 
beautiful little girls who can also be very, very naughty. And I can get angry at them instead of trusting God and asking him to help me not assert myself, but entrust them to God's justice and be a wise parent, but at the same time not asserting myself, but God's authority. And finally, we're to Sarah, and for us, we're to put on no fear, all right? We're to do right and let nothing terrify you. The Amplified Bible just um, translates that as do right and let nothing terrify you, not giving way to hysterical fears or letting anxieties unnerve you, all right? So these anxieties that unnerve us, that's ultimately not trusting God either. And God wants us to give that to him and know that we don't have to be unnerved by these anxieties. We need to trust him instead. So Sarah, if Sarah was able to learn and become an example of adorning her inner person of the heart with these qualities, then God can certainly help us spiritually adorn ourselves this way too. This is how every one of us should adorn ourselves to please God most of all. And this kind of inner beauty also makes us beautiful to in our husband's eyes too if he values God. And for those who are single, it would make you more beautiful in the eyes of a godly man who's hopefully looking for a spouse who is godly as well. We can try our best to have outward beauty, but age will catch up with us at some point, some earlier than others. All this money and time spent on our outward beauty and all our efforts toward that every day, the world and our husbands and our own eyes, we say, yes, outer beauty, that's so important. It's precious. It's worth all this effort. But inner beauty lasts and doesn't fade with time. It can get even better. The biggest, our biggest desire should be to be beautiful to God. And if you want your marriage to be godly or your life just to please God, then we need to focus on inner beauty that's precious to God more than outer beauty. So just think of how much time do you spend each day towards outer beauty and how much do we spend towards cultivating inner beauty through our relationship with God. So this past year, I've had so many physical problems and difficulties um, and back pain and I've had a lot of weight gain. I feel, you know, outer beauty is this... A hard thing, but it's been a reminder to me of how fleeting and out of our control sometimes our outward appearance is. <clears throat> and even if I can't change the outward, I can change the inward. And the same is true for all of us. You know, we can we have influence at at some point with our outward appearance, but we don't ever have full control over that at all. But our inward beauty grows as we grow in our relationship with God. And that's just us, up to us. Are we going to invest that time and make that a priority? So number two for Sarah in her faithfulness, Sarah had faith that God would give her a son. Finally. <laughs> Finally she has faith in that. Genesis 21, verse 1, And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did 
for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore to him, not Hagar, Sarah. He named him Isaac. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. Finally, this is a laugh of joy and not a laugh of doubt. All right? So Hebrews 11, 11 to 12, is the hall of faith. All right? God himself writes and lists great men and women of faith, and here's Sarah. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Isn't that amazing? She judged him faithful who had promised. The Amplified Bible says, Because of faith also, Sarah herself received physical power to conceive a child, even when she was long past the age for it, because she considered God, who had given her the promise to be reliable and trustworthy and true to his word. That's good. God is reliable, trustworthy, true to his word. If we can focus on that, then we can say, all right, I'll let go of all my doubts, all of the impossibilities, and trust God, because he is reliable, trustworthy, and true to his word. Sarah looked away from herself and her barrenness and her 90 years old age, and she banked on her faithful God for the fulfillment of this promise that she would have a child and be mother of many nations. We know this didn't come easy for Sarah because we just read how she first laughed nine months before this, right? She laughed at God and she did not believe. But then God rebuked her for the laughter and said, is anything too hard for God? And the next thing we hear from Sarah here in Hebrews 11, we see that she has joy and thanks to God when Isaac is born. She gives God the glory for the child. <clears throat> and so we see with the writer of Hebrews that with God's rebuke and the reminder that, that nothing's too hard for the Lord, God restored Sarah's faith and caused her to truly trust in him. Faith enables the believing soul to treat the future as present and the invisible as seen. See? Sarah finally came to have this kind of faith. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength because she judged him faithful who had promised. Sarah came to realize that the promise of God had greater strength than her body had weakness. And Charles Spurgeon says, and that was good judgment, was it not? To judge God faithful? Good judgment, Sarah. There is no mistake about that. Whatever difficulties may lie in the way, we may always know that God is faithful who has promised. We would be wrong not to trust God to do far beyond our human abilities. Our faith is, faith is not in ourselves or in our faith, but in God who is faithful. But keep in mind, relapse is likely, all right? The next part is, um, I imagine, as like a movie miniseries or something, and it's titled Sarah the Sist and the Sister Lie from the Egyptian Empire Strikes Back, all right? <laughs> My guess is Sarah first thought back in Egypt, oh, I'll never do that again. Yet, she fell back into the same old sin many years later here in Genesis 20. Abraham journeyed 
from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, She is my sister? And she, even she herself, said, He is my brother. So we see explicitly she went along with it again. It's like deja vu all over again, right? A different king, a different country, but the same lie. You say you're my sister so they won't kill me. And he comes so far, but obviously slipped back into their old sin again, all right? So Abraham and Sarah aren't alone in struggling with relapse, coming so far, but then falling back again. I know I am one of those, and uh, Peter as well relapsed. Jesus even warned him before it happened, right? Right before he denied Jesus three times. Luke 22, 31 to 32, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. All right, so he says, I've prayed for you. I know you're going to deny me, but your faith isn't going to fail. You're going to come back, you see? And that's Sarah, and that needs to be us, that we, we recognize and hate our sin when we relapse into it, but that our faith doesn't fail like it did for Judas, that we come back to God, we ask for forgiveness, we continue to trust him and seek to follow him and continue in that and know that God can forgive us and restore us and still even use us, which is just crazy, awesome, amazing that God has that kind of forgiveness, right? And he really does. So Romans eight twenty seven says, Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Remember that from Sunday? All right? So... God is there. Jesus is there making intercession to God on our behalf. So he's not um, unaware or um, shocked by our relapses into sin. He's there interceding for us. So this past year has been one of my hardest in a long time with serious pain and health difficulties and family and church challenges as well. And I've struggled all over again with a lot of lessons and sins that I thought I'd already learned and already conquered. And yet, I have relapsed, and God helps me as well, you know? And thankfully, he is still willing to use us. And God can teach us and bring us so far in our faith journey, but we're still susceptible like Sarah, to fall back into our old sinful habits. But thankfully, God restores us and forgives us yet again as he did for Sarah. And he can forgive and restore and even use us again for his purpose and his service. So remember our theme verse, Hebrews eleven six. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God honors Sarah in the Bible as reward of her faith. All right. Remember, he rewards those who diligently seek him. God honors Sarah. All right. 
And here's just some of the ways that in the earthly sense that God honors Sarah. Obviously, she had a lot to look forward to in heaven as well. Genesis 23:1. Sarah is the only woman in the Bible whose total age is told. All right. Genesis 23:2. Sarah was the first Jew to be married in the promised land, which is the first Israelite-owned piece of the promised land. All right. Very first person buried there. And the land was bought to be a place to bury, for Abraham to bury Sarah. She was honored, uh, sorry, Genesis 24, 36. Sarah was honored by Abraham's top steward, Eliezer. And Genesis 24, 67, Sarah was loved and honored by her son, Isaac. And as we've already read, 1 Peter 3, 6, God chose to use Sarah as an example of a godly wife. And in Hebrews 11, 11, God uses Sarah as an example of faith for all people in um, the hall of faith. So this was all for Sarah, all right? Um, the same one who sinned, relapsed, failed so often in her faith, all right? This is her legacy of independent faithlessness turned into God-dependent faithfulness. So, wherever you are tonight, and it could be really bad, but have you commanded your husband to cheat on you? Have you lied to any kings recently? All right, you're not beyond hope. All right, seeing Sarah's faithless failures and then change into being a woman full of faith helps us to know that if God can change Sarah, then he can change and grow each of us into a woman of faith as well. So how can we grow in faith? First, we must recognize that God's the one who desires to grow us in faith and is the one who's able to grow us and mature us in faith. Philippians 1.6, wonderful verse, right? He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Ultimately, it's God. We just have to trust him and let him have control to change us. We don't naturally trust in someone we don't know. We grow in faith by getting to know God better. And so how do we get to know God better? Through his word. Romans 10, 17. So then faith comes, which is what we want. We want faith to come. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we want to be women of faith and grow to be more and more women of faith. We have to hear and study and know, meditate on God's word. Time with Jesus grows our faith. So don't continue in a faithless life. We need to spend time with Jesus and become faithful. Quality time with God is what we have to have. What's best for our marriage is not outward beauty or consistent date night or excellent communication. It's time with Jesus. What's best for parenting is not discipline or motivational techniques. It's time with Jesus. What makes us beautiful to others and to God is not our outward appearance, but the inner beauty that comes from time with Jesus. I was the old Sarah. I am seeking to become the faithful Sarah, and I still struggle with being the relapsing Sarah. I have a long, long way to go. 
but I'm encouraged because I'm confident that God who has promised is faithful to complete the good work that he began in me. If we increase in the word, then God can grow our faith like he did for Sarah and change our legacies to be women of faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you have begun a good work in us and that you are the one that takes responsibility to carry it on to completion. I pray that you help us to suspend ourselves in you, to have confidence in you, to have faith that you are the one who can do this and help us to entrust ourselves to you and not seek and strive to do things through our own effort, Father God. I pray that you would help us to depend on you and to grow as women of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.